that the person God wants you to be, becoming the person that God wants you to be, does not happen by default. It does not happen by accident. It takes hard work. As the Bible says, it's like the work of a farmer who labors, labors, labors over his crops, lest they be overrun with weeds or with insects. It is like the work of an athlete who disciplines his body, lest he be disqualified from the race. It is like the work of a soldier who keeps himself alert at all times and does not allow himself to become entangled with the things of the world. Becoming a godly man or woman takes effort. It doesn't happen while we sleep. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen merely by coming to church week after week. We have to work at it. And as long as I've been serving at this church, I've made it a point to exhort us to consider the lives of godly men and women of the past to learn how it was that they became godly. How did they become godly? How did they become the kind of people that they were, that we read about? I believe we all need heroes. And I've said so openly many times in the past We all need heroes, people whose lives can be seen up close, people who know God and entice us to make whatever sacrifices are necessary so that we can know him as they knew him. People whose lives create kind of a holy covetousness in us that makes us say, oh, that I may know him like Paul knew him, that I might know him like you name it. I want to know him. We need men like David Brainerd, whose longing for God stirs up a spiritual hunger in all who read his personal journal. Or like Jonathan Edwards, whose masterful handling of the Word of God provokes us to study the Scriptures with greater diligence. Or William Carey, whose passion for lost souls propelled him into frontier missions in India And thousands followed him to do the same. Or women like Amy Carmichael, whose compassion for the little abandoned girls in India led her to start a ministry whose fruit has been produced and reproduced and reproduced all over the world as people have followed her example. The author of Hebrews wrote, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, listen, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. You mark the people in your life or in your church or in history. Get to know those godly ones and imitate their faith. We need heroes like those whose lives we can imitate for the purpose of godliness. And that's why I try to discipline myself regularly to read great biographies of great men and women who have gone on before. But you know, as I was thinking about it this week, in the final analysis, all of these great men and women who have set such a positive example for us to follow, in the final analysis, they are merely dim reflections of the great hero of our faith. They are only shadows of the reality of the one who serves for us as the definition of godliness. You want to know what it means to be godly? 
look to Christ. Look to Jesus. He is the personification of godliness because he is the incarnation of God. There is no person more godly. There is therefore no greater example for us to follow. And so as Paul here in Ephesians is unpacking for us in Ephesians 4 what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with which we have been called, he comes to verse 32 and it seems to suddenly occur to him that all he has really been telling us is this, live like God. Live like God. Do you really want to be godly? Then imitate God. And so he writes in Ephesians 5 verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God. In other words, live like God. Respond to your enemies with the patience of God. Respond to your enemies. Respond to your neighbors. Live like God. Speak the truth like God. Exercise self-control like God. Work hard like God. Give generously like God. Be gracious like God. That's what it means to be godly. It's not just what you believe, but what you do that defines you as a godly person or as ungodly. The word for imitators here is the source of our English word mimic. It carries the idea of copying behavior or the characteristics of another person. When I was teaching my boys to play the guitar, each time we had a lesson, I would sit down and, and have them play it. And if they got it wrong, I would say, no, it's like this. And I would take the guitar and I would play it for them. And then I would give it back. You play it now. And they would play it. And I would say, well, that's getting better, but play it like this. And I would play it again. And we would do that until they got it right. And then they would move on. That's what it means to mimic or to imitate. And by the way, that's a good illustration because look at the way Paul identifies us here. Therefore, be imitators of God as what? As beloved children. As beloved children. The idea here is that the children are to seek to become like their dad. I mean, can there be any greater compliment to a father than for a son to say, I just want to be like my dad. It's my goal in life is to be very much like he is. I want to talk like him. I want to serve like him. I want to love like him. I want to work like him. And that's what Paul is calling us to. That's glory. To glorify God is not only about being satisfied in Him, but it's also about striving to become like Him. We're called not only to admire Jesus for His teaching and His character and His divine beauty, but to aspire to imitate the pattern of His life. And so Paul is emphasizing once again that we begin a to be a Christian uh, not by just what we believe, but by what we do. It's not that what we do saves us, 
But it's the fact that our belief should have a result and bear fruit in our lives. That's the whole point of his message here. What you say you believe ought to be authenticated by the way that you live. Therefore, imitate God. Live like God. We all know people who say they believe the primary teachings associated with the gospel, but whose lives and whose conversation blatantly contradict those claims. Paul is saying it shouldn't be true of you. That shouldn't be true of you. People shouldn't know you as a person who says one thing and does another, who say they believe this, but they act like that. The gospel that we heard bestows forgiveness and demands repentance. It bestows forgiveness and demands repentance. The two always go together. It's both a call and an empowerment. It's a calling and an empowerment to exercise faith and to live like God. It's the call to stop living like God's enemies and to start living like God. And by the way, did you notice the term here, verse 1? It's not just children. It's dear children. It's beloved children. This is beautiful. This is why I asked Charlie and the girls to sing that song this morning. I'm your beloved. Did you listen to that? He's the creator of heaven and earth. He is the Lord of majesty. And who am I compared to your glory? And the word of God answers, you're my beloved. You are my beloved. My dear children. The idea here is that children belong to the household of God and are loved by him more than anything else in the world. Another way to translate dear children is this, be imitators of God as God's favorite children. Now, there is a sense in which all people are God's children. We know from the book of Acts that that's the case in that he, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He is the father of us all. On the other hand, however, those who come to God through faith are loved by him with an endearing intimacy that the unbeliever knows nothing of. Nothing of. We are his beloved. We are his dear children. We are his favorite children. We have a special status because we are in Christ. God looks at us differently. And it's all by grace. Ephesians 2.3, Paul explains that at one time we were children of wrath, right? But unbeknownst to us, before the foundation of the world, God's great love moved him to, chapter 1, verse 5, predestined us to adoption as sons according to the kind intention of his will. And so we are no longer Children of wrath. In fact, we'll find out in chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says that we who once lived in darkness are now not children of wrath, but children of light. We were once children of wrath. 
We are now children of light. Paul is saying, live like children of light. Live like God. This is one of the most marvelous truths in the Bible. That we are children of God. We are God's dear children. His beloved. The Apostle John often referred to himself as, you remember? The one whom Jesus loved. And in his first epistle at the end of the New Testament, he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. Then in John chapter 1, he says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called, what? Children of God. What a privileged people we are. What a privileged people we are to have a father such as this. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's what? Household. You're part of his family now. You used to be an alien. You used to be a stranger. You used to be a, a child of wrath. But now you're a part of God's family. You're a child of God. We are his beloved children. It's only natural then that we who are the children of God would aspire to be like our dad. We'd aspire to be like our father, seeing ourselves as his beloved children. We desire to honor him with our lives. You see, imitation is the purest expression of admiration. Imitation is the purest expression of admiration. You want to show someone that you admire them? Imitate their life. Become like them. In seeking to glorify Him, we work at imitating Him in all things for His glory and for our great joy. But notice with me that Paul doesn't leave us floundering around here to figure out what it means to imitate God. Rather, he sums it all up in three words. He says, namely, walk in love. Walk in love. You want to know what it means to live like God? This is where we start. Walk in love. You want to know if you are really a godly godly person? Ask yourself, do I walk in love? Is my life characterized by loving other people? You see, true godliness is not so much about what you know or how much you know but about how much you love. True godliness is not tested by how much you know, but by how much you love. Now, what does walking in love look like? Well, Paul tells us in verse 2, he writes, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, let's follow this, shall we? Do you want to be godly? Imitate God. How do you imitate God? You walk in love. How do you walk in love? You love like Christ. And how do you love like Christ? Well, here we go. Three ways. Three kinds of love that will give us a good place to start. If you're looking for points to an outline, here they are. Three kinds of love that Jesus exercised that serve as an example of godliness that we are called to imitate. 
Love number one. A forgiving love. Forgiving love. How do I love like Jesus? Jesus exercised a forgiving love. Now for this we need to step back one verse because Paul alludes to it in chapter 4 verse 32, the last verse of the chapter, and we didn't take time to discuss it last week. Paul writes, Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And then he says, therefore, be imitators of God. This is what God is like. This is how he loves. He forgave you. Imitate that. You want to be godly? This is where you start. If love is the surest test of godliness, then forgiveness is the surest test of love. You say you love someone? Well, let's put that to the test. Are you willing to forgive them? Are you willing to forgive them? It's easy to say we love someone, but when that love is put, on, put to the test of sin, will it forgive? Will it forgive? It's easy to say you love someone, but when that one sins against you, will you forgive? where love starts. When Christine and I were in college together, she showed up in 1984. I was already on campus for a little while. It didn't take long for us to develop a friendship, and we began spending time together. And Before long, I became so sure that this was the woman that I was going to marry that I wrote it down in a little journal that I was keeping and gave it to her two years later when we were married. But as we were I don't want to say dating. We went to a very strict Christian school, and you weren't allowed to date. You weren't hardly allowed to look at each other. But as we were getting to know each other for those couple of years, one of the things that we agreed upon early on is we don't throw around the phrase, I love you. We're not going to say that because we understand that to say that carries weight. It assumes a commitment It assumes something more than sentiment. And so we held it as precious, and we held it back, those words, I love you. And so in our, you know, what do you say? (laughs) And so we were reduced to saying, I was reduced to saying, you know what? I like you a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I really like you. And uh, it sounds silly to you, and it was kind of silly to us at the time, and we laughed about it all the time. But we would never say those words. Never say, I love you. Because if we ever got to that point, we wanted that to be the point of no return. And so eventually there came a day when I was ready to open my heart completely to her and tell her those words. I wanted to make it special. I thought about having it written in the sky, you know, having a plane, or at least getting a billboard just off campus. So uh, I couldn't afford that, so I did the next best thing. I went out and I ordered one of those big chocolate chip cookies (laughs) (laughs) and wrote in big letters, I love you. But you know, as tender as that moment was, and as funny as it is to think about now, 
It was nowhere near the fullest expression of love that we know together today. The greatest test was not whether or not I was willing to say the words which assumed a commitment. The greatest test was not the test of affection. The greatest test was the test of sin. When I sin against you, will you forgive me? That's the test. Would you forgive after being sinned against by the one to whom you have said, I love you? I can honestly say today that there is no human being I feel closer to, no one I feel more affection for, and no one I would rather spend my free time with than the woman that I've been married to for 18 years. And the primary reason I think that we are so close is because we have so often and so frequently passed the test of sin. The reason that there are no barriers of resentment or anger that stand between us and keep us apart is because no matter how often I have sinned against her, she has willingly, utterly, and completely forgiven. And that's what it means to love like Christ, right? There is no greater test of godliness than to love like that. Paul's not talking about marriage here. He will in in a very few verses in chapter 5. But just as an aside, you want something practical to think about? Husbands, wives? Is there tension there? A little bit of friction that keeps the two of you apart. If the Lord were to come and say, Brother, son, tell me who's your best friend. Who is the person that you feel no barrier between you and them? Would it be your wife? Women, would it be your husband? If not, I ask why. Why not? Could it be a lack of either, number one, repentance, or number two, forgiveness? Forgiveness. We all get sinned against. There isn't a person here who doesn't sin, and therefore there's not a person here who isn't sinned against. The question is not, will you experience a sinful relationship if you are married to a sinful person? Then the two of you both are in hard times because you're both selfish And without the Holy Spirit, you're in deep trouble. But because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the truth of his word, you don't have to live in the natural. You don't have to live naturally. People say, well, you know, it's only natural to be angry. It's only natural to get bitter. Look what he did. Well, you're right. It is natural. But we are not called to live in the natural. We are called to live in the supernatural. Will you forgive? I mean, really forgive. Utterly and completely forgive. The greatest display of God's love was that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Nothing more clearly reveals a loveless heart than a lack of forgiveness. A lack of forgiveness betrays a lack of love. 
It's the presence of forgiveness always proves the presence of love. And that's because only the love of God, which if you're looking for the Greek word here, it's agape, only the love of God has the power to forgive one who is undeserving. Now, it's easy to forgive people who deserve to be forgiven, right? It's easy for someone to forgive someone who comes groveling to you. But what about the person who doesn't? What about the undeserving? Don't say you love someone if you're unwilling to forgive them. Rather, love them by forgiving them, and you may not have to say the words very often. They will just know. I recommend that you say the words as often as you can. But that'll just be icing on the cake. Because they will know by your unhindered love and loving treatment of them and opening yourself up to them that you love them. You have forgiven them. The point is, this is how Christ loved us. And so this is how we ought to love one another. So you want to know how to love like Christ? His was a forgiving love. His was a forgiving love. But there was a second. Christ's love was an unconditional love. It was an unconditional love. Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 2, Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Christ's love was not just forgiving, it was unconditional. It's a love that is motivated not by a desire to receive for oneself, but a desire to give for the sake of the other. The death of Christ was not based on a shallow and fickle emotion that he had, he had running kind of high about the time he was 33 years old. Wow, I really love these people like I never loved them before. I think I'll die for them. It's not what it was like. We know from this very letter, Ephesians, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit made the decision even before they created man that this would happen. This is how he would demonstrate his love for us. It wasn't a fickle burst of emotion. It was an unconditional decision to sacrifice himself for the good of people who were absolutely undeserving. And not even alive at that point. Before they did anything good or bad, God set his love upon them and chose to die for them. And when did God demonstrate his love for us? Paul said, Romans 5.8. I've already read this. Romans 5.8. It was, while we were yet sinners. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were God's enemies. While we were most determined to suppress the truth of unrighte- in unrighteousness, it was then that God gave himself up for us, purely out of sovereign grace, sovereign love toward people who were absolutely undeserving. That's the kind of love we're talking about. It's the kind of love that God is calling us to. This is the kind of love that God wants from us. Do you see why it has to be a love in us that is not something that originates from us? It's got to be a love that is given to us. Otherwise, it cannot come from us because it did not originate with us. 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? If you are going to love someone the way God calls us to love each other in the church and in our homes, it is going to have to be supernatural. It's going to have to be supernatural. You know, I talked a little while ago about the need for you to be meditating on the Word of God. Keep this thing in your pocket. Pull it out during the day, several times a day. Meditate on the Word of God. Why? Because this is hard. And if you're not keeping your heart warmed to the Spirit, enlarged, as David said, enlarge my heart, O God. If you're not keeping your heart enlarged by pursuing the glory of God through His Word, meditating on His truth, then you know what your heart tends to do? It tends to shrivel up. It tends to move back toward hardness. It's the old um, law of entropy, right? Things move from uh, complex to simple. In the spiritual realm, it's the same thing. Your heart will tend to move from soft to hard naturally. And if you're not keeping watch over it, keep watch over your heart with all diligence, uh, Solomon said, for out of it, out of it springs the, the, uh, the, the, the essence of life. You need to keep your heart. If you're not keeping your heart fixed on the Lord, you're going to be working out of the natural all the time. Forgive your enemies. Treat my wife like this. I can't do that. Treat my husband. Do you know what he did to me? You're right. Old Howard Hendricks used to say, the Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. It is impossible. Unless the Holy Spirit is alive and well in your heart. Unless he is moving, unless you are giving him sway over your heart, it will be impossible. Jesus said, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. And oh, how much nothing we do. When did God demonstrate his love for us? While we were yet sinners, this is the kind of love God calls us to. It's not natural for a wife to love her husband after she's been so horribly mistreated or neglected. It's not natural for brothers to love one another after there have been some deep breach of trust between them. It's not natural for fellow believers to love one another after they have sinned against each other. But this is what it means to be imitators of God and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. It's an unconditional love. It's not the kind of love that says, I'll start loving you after you've confessed how you hurt me and after you've started making restitution. No, it's a love that says, even before you ask, I forgive as Christ has forgiven me, so I forgive you. You see, to be godly is to imitate God. And imitating God means we love like Christ. And loving like Christ means we love forgivingly and unconditionally. But there's a third kind of love evidenced in the life of Christ, and it's mentioned here in the text. He was a, it, his was a sacrificial love. It was a sacrificial love. 
And whenever you're studying the Word of God out of the English, it's always a wonderful thing. But if you can buy yourself some tools to help you see it in the Greek, you will move from black and white to color like that. He says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself. Seems a rather inconspicuous phrase, gave himself. I mean, how many meanings could that have, right? Gave himself. Well, the word gave himself is paradidomi here, and it's instructive. If you trace it out through the New Testament, you can see a very definite pattern. Matthew 18.34, I'm just going to give you five verses to think about, and then a sixth. Matthew 18.34, you remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? Matthew 18, right? Telling us how to do church discipline, and then immediately on the heels of teaching us how to discipline a sinful brother, he teaches us how to forgive, the extent to which we should forgive. Should I forgive seven times? No, 70 times 7. And Jesus tells us a parable of the unforgiving servant. And at the end we read this. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over, paradidomi, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was over him, owed, owed him. Handed him over is the same word that Paul uses here. Gave himself. Matthew 27, 26, uh, 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 Matthew tells us that Pontius Pilate, quote, released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Paradidomi. Mark 3:19 refers to Judas Iscariot, who was the one, listen to this, who betrayed him. Paradidomi. In John 19.30, we read that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Paradidomi. Romans 8.32, one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament, refers to God as the one who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Paradidomi. You see the pattern? You get the picture? When Paul says Jesus gave himself up for us, he is speaking about the fact that the Lord Jesus offered himself not only unconditionally, but sacrificially. In other words, it is a love that is understood, that understood that it would not be free from suffering. Get this. It understood from the beginning that the love that I will share with my people will not be a comfortable love that shares no suffering. It will be a long-suffering love. He would even suffer at the hands of the ones that he was loving. But it chose to love just the same for the good of the ones that he loved. You know, when most people enter into marriage, they imagine that getting married will be a means of avoiding pain and enhancing pleasure. Uh, if you think that, <laughs> you haven't been married very long. Discomfort and sacrifice 
are about as far off the map of expectation with most young couples as it can possibly be. I'm getting married to be happy. It doesn't take very long for them to learn how painful married life can be. And when that happens, the real test of love begins. Will I sacrifice for the one I say I love or will I surrender to my flesh? You know, you take all the divorce issues that are upon our country and upon the church today. And I dare say you can trace all of it back to this. Two things. Lack of repentance or lack of forgiveness? Did you go into the marriage thinking that it was going to be easy? It's not going to be easy. I love it when, you know, I have a young couple come for counseling and you sit down and you tell them, it's going to be hard, it's going to be challenging, it's going to be difficult, and they're just looking at each other, you know. (laughs) You know, just, just sit them in the same chair, for goodness sakes, and leave the room, come back a half hour later, and they'll be fine. They're not hearing a word you're saying anyway. They, they, you know, they don't believe it's going to be hard. How can it be hard? We love each other. We've loved each other for years. But it comes. And when it happens, that is the real test of love. And most people, 50%, let's say, statistics say, 50% of married couples don't do that. They don't pass the test of sin. They don't pass the test of forgiveness. They went into it thinking that it was not going to involve sacrifice. And when sacrifices started coming and the pain was required, they wanted out. It wasn't the love of Christ. Will I sacrifice for the one I love or will I surrender to my flesh? If you're serious about true godliness, you will, have to, you will exercise the love of paradidomi the way Christ did when he gave himself up for us all. And that's precisely Paul's meaning when he gets to verse 25. Husbands, don't miss this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and parodidomi, gave himself up for her. You get the picture? It's a sacrificial love. And how did he give himself up, Paul says? As an offering and sacrifice to God. Now, you've got to understand out of the Old Testament, anything can be a sacrifice. Anything can be a sacrifice. They had a wave offering. You know what a wave offering is? It's kind of like that. They would take a, a bowl of grain or whatever, and they'd go, you know, they'd kind of wave it to God. Here it is. Here it is. I'm going to eat it here in a minute, but here it is. Uh, give it to the priest to eat. It was a wave offering. It wasn't burnt. It wasn't... Uh, you didn't pour uh, a wine on it or any, anything like that. You just waved it. Here it is, Lord. It's my offering. And you leave it. That's an offering. Anything can be an offering. You can offer money. You can offer your time. You can offer your, uh, you know, the Pharisees were, were scrupulous about tithing their mint and their dill. I mean, everything that they possessed, they gave one-tenth of. That's an offering. But there's a difference between an offering and a sacrifice. The sacrifice always involved the death of a victim who bore the punishment in the place of another, willingly or unwillingly. 
Only one did it willingly. And what they would do in the Old Testament, and you know this, they would bring the lamb or the goat. And the priest would come and put his hand on the goat as kind of an indication that all of our sin is now on you. And they would take it out to the wilderness and set it free until it died there. That's where we get the term scapegoat. It comes from the Bible. It comes from Old Testament history. Or they would take the lamb and the priest would lay his hand on his head and slit his throat. And another priest would catch the blood in a bowl and take it over to the altar and throw the bowl at the altar. It was a bloody mess. It was a butcher house. That's a sacrifice. That's a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it was a lamb or a bull or a goat. In the New Testament, it was Christ. And because Jesus loved us with that kind of sacrificial love, Paul says, you, as imitators of God, are to love one another like that. You see why the Apostle Paul always envisioned the church to be this glorious thing unlike anything else the world had ever seen people don't live like this and if they ever did people would take notice outsiders would know it love one another as christ loved the church your marriage ought to be known by other people as a marriage that looks like this You know, people think that to have a good marriage, you just, man, must just have a great wife. Well, I do have a great wife. But she married a horrible sinner. She's just very, very forgiving. You must have a great marriage. Maybe, you know, you, you guys are just good people. No, it's not true. You must not experience much difficulty. Really? It's not true. It's not the issue of how much difficulty. It's not the issue of how much you disagree. It's not an issue of how much you like one another or don't like one another. The question is, will you love them? Will you love them unconditionally? Will you love them sacrificially? Will you love them forgivingly? Do you know what kind of love is like? That kind of love is like to the heart of God? When God sees this kind of love happening in the church, when God sees this kind of love happening between brothers and sisters at home or uh, brothers and sisters in Christ in the community or husband and wife, you know what it's like to God? Paul tells us. He gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a what? Fragrant aroma. The Hebrew phrase here means savor of rest. If you trace this out in the Hebrew... Savor of rest, that is, one which composes or pacifies or pleases. It just smells good. You know, if you really want to get a handle on this, you go all the way back into Genesis. Remember the story of Noah and the ark? My kids always say, Dad, how many, how many animals did Moses take in on the ark? <laughs> And then they're wanting you to say, oh, I don't know, a hundred. Um, Dad, Moses didn't take any animals on the ark. It was Noah. Oh, you know, I'm a pastor. I should know that. (laughs) 
The rain comes for 40 days and 40 nights and everything on earth dies. And after a year of floating around in the ark, they hit Mount Ararat and the waters recede and everything begins to grow. And the door is opened and Noah and his family come out very much alive. And he is overwhelmed that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so what does he do? What does he do? Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. He takes two of every clean animal, and we presume that the pairs that he brought on all had babies. And he takes two of every clean animal, and he builds an altar, and guess what? He sacrifices all of them. Two of every clean animal. He sacrifices them before God. And you know what God does? Genesis 8:21. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. You know what Paul is saying? That's what it was like when Jesus died. God smelled that and said... This is good, and I will never send my people to hell. I will never judge them in eternal fire. Jesus died on the cross. It was a sacrifice that touched the heart of God with great pleasure. Isaiah 53 says, It pleased the Lord to crush him. Because of what Love Jesus displayed and what he accomplished through his death. To him, the sacrifice of his son was a fragrant aroma, just like it was when Noah sacrificed all those animals, just like it was every time the priest came and sacrificed another lamb. And so it is every time one of his children chooses to love sacrificially. A person who is unworthy of such love. It is a soothing aroma. It is a fragrant perfume. This is the true test of godliness. You want to know what it's like to be godly? This is what it's like to be godly. Live like God. You say, that's an awfully high standard. Yeah, it is. It's time we wake up to the fact that this is an awfully high standard. And it can't be done if we don't put any effort into it. We must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Otherwise, it'll never happen. It'll never happen. True godliness is not about how much we know. It's about how much we love. It's about how much we love. Let's pray.